I'm excited to, uh, to continue our series, uh, Marketplace Ministry. And if you're taking notes this morning, I'd like you to please write down, work your window. Work your window. How many of you in this room would like to know what you were born for? Because I'll tell you, you were born to work. Somebody just got a little depressed. They're like, ah. Now, I don't necessarily mean you were born to work at the current location that you work right now. I'm saying that you were not born for leisure. You were born for work. Now, on one hand, I would tell you that God created mankind with the purpose of having relationship with sons and daughters. But I can also tell you that the very first thing that he had Adam do was not take a nap. He didn't have Adam, you know, like, like lounge around. His, his, his original design and purpose shows us what our original design and purpose was, which is that he immediately put the man to work in the garden. You were born to work. The other side of this is, is that you were born again into ministry. I want to remind somebody in the room this morning, there is no such thing as a part-time ministry Christian. There's no such thing as part-time in the kingdom. If you have been bought with a price, you are in full-time ministry. Which means that A.W. Tozer said it this way. He said, what you think about God determines the most important thing about you. The most important thing about you is what you believe about God. How many of you guys have ever watched, like, maybe I'm just weird, but I've always been fascinated with, like, window washers. This is not a joke. Like, I see these, like, massive skyscrapers, right? And then, like, you see these, like, you see these guys on, like, scaffolding washing windows. And, and, and in my mind, I'm like, how do they get? I mean, first of all, okay, I'm, I'm not, like, afraid of heights per se. I just, like, don't like heights. And I don't, I don't prefer heights. There we go. I don't prefer heights, right? 13 to 15 feet is about my maximum before I'm just like, <laughs> is, this, is this ladder secure? I don't know. But like, aside from like, when, when, I, when I get past like the initial fear of like, I just see somebody on a height and I'm just like, please don't die. You know, like when I get past the initial fear, like when I think about these guys as they're, as they're, as they're washing windows on these massive skyscrapers, my initial thought is, how do they actually get all these things? windows done like it's a skyscraper that's essentially made out of windows how do you finish this well the answer is they work the window in front of them until it's done and then they move on can i tell you i'm I'm gonna i'm gonna do something that I, i rarely ever do okay so just come with me for a moment i am going to take a scripture somewhat out of its context in order to in order to uh to fulfill a greater context okay so we're gonna go to matthew chapter 6 real quick matthew 6 33 and 34 and this is jesus he says but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be given to you as well therefore do not worry about tomorrow for tomorrow will worry about itself each day has enough trouble of its own each day has enough trouble of its own how many of you, okay, how many of you ever read scripture and you're like, easier said than done, my guy? You know, like, like I definitely, I'm still in like, I'm still in the, the, the point in my life, maybe, maybe I haven't reached peak perfection yet, but like, I'm still in the place where when I see Jesus say things like, don't worry about tomorrow, I'm like, 
But did he really mean that? Like, you really don't want me to worry about tomorrow at all? But, you know, here's the thing is that we are, from a pretty young age, we are told that we need to be planning for our future, quote unquote. Now, on one hand, I would absolutely agree with that sentiment. Like, how many of you in here have ever taken the Dave Ramsey program? Okay, maybe you're like me and you came late to the Dave Ramsey program game. And like when he tells you how much money you'll have at 60 if you start saving, you know, X amount of dollars by 18 and you're sitting in that room at 26 or 27 years old and you're like, thanks, Dave, a little behind on the eight ball here. Where were you when I was 16? Right. But like on one hand, I would, I would absolutely agree that you should be saving for retirement, right? Like you don't want to save for start saving for retirement at 50 years old because you're not going to really save a whole lot of money. But by the way, if you haven't saved for retirement and you're 50, please start saving for retirement. <laughs> I'm not saying don't. I'm just saying, like, the time to start is right now. The best time to start was yesterday. The, 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 the next best time to start is right now, okay? But what I will tell you is this, is that we often, we often find ourselves sacrificing the present on the altar of a perceived greater future. I have to remind somebody in the room, no matter what it is that has been prophesied over your life, no matter what it is that God has spoken over your life, your mission is not 20 years from now, it's today. What, what God has for your future doesn't start in 15 years, it doesn't start in five years, it starts right now. Sometimes we get so future-minded that we forget that what gets us to the future is the present. What if I told you that the little things done well today are the building blocks that you need to see that future come together in its time? Don't get so focused on what's ahead of you out there that you forget that the journey of a thousand miles starts with a single step. Listen to this. We're going to go to First uh, Samuel here real quick. First Samuel chapter 3, verses 1 to 10. Says the boy Samuel ministered before the Lord under Eli. I want you to, I want you to focus on that just for a minute. The boy Samuel ministered before the Lord under Eli. So, I mean, essentially Samuel was, Samuel was practicing. He was, he was doing all the things that he was being taught were right in order to minister to God. And then it says this in the next, in the next verse. It says, in those days, the word of the Lord was rare. There were not many visions. In those days, the word of the Lord was rare. And there were not many visions. How many of you have ever felt? How many of you have ever felt like you're serving God more than he's talking to you? You don't have to raise your hands on that one. I'm just asking the question. One night, Eli, whose eyes were becoming so weak that he could barely see, was lying down in his usual place. The lamp of God had not yet gone out. And Samuel was lying down in the house of the Lord where the ark of God was. Then the Lord called Samuel. Samuel answered, here I am. And he ran to Eli and said, here I am. You called me. Okay, I'm going to stop real quick. Like, I, I very rarely want to put myself in the position as Eli in, in, in stories and scripture. But like, how many of you have ever had your child wake you up in the middle of the night and ask you an absolutely inane question? Like, I kind of feel Eli's pain right now, right? Like, he's like an old man, and, 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 and this, this, this boy that he's, that he's raising comes up to him and wakes him up like three or four different times. Anyway, he goes, but Eli said, I didn't call you. 
go back and lie down. Man, I, I felt that in my soul, right? Like, I'm just like, oh my gosh, man. So he went and lay down. Again, the Lord called Samuel, and Samuel got up and went to Eli and said, here I am, you called me. My son, Eli said, I did not call Go back and lie down. Like, I'm getting tired just reading this, right? Like, oh my gosh. So it happened to me last night. Anyway, sorry. Get to, let's go. <laughs> now, Samuel did not, okay, here, come on, come with me. Samuel did not know the Lord. The word of the Lord had not yet been revealed to him. I want to tell a parent in the room right now who is trying to train your child to love Jesus, who's trying to train your child to worship, who's trying to train your child to read the scripture, you are not training them for hypocrisy. You are, you are, you are training them for an encounter that will come. You're training him for an encounter that is going to come. See, the interesting thing about what Samuel's reaction here is that he didn't know God yet, but he knew his father. He knew Eli. And so instead of, instead of saying, wow, that was a random voice tonight. Better go back to sleep. His initial like, gut check reaction was, I hear the voice of my father, I go to his aid. I hear the voice of my father, I go to him. Because he had been trained that when he heard his father, he came running. There's going to come a point in time where the child that you've been struggling with, the child that you've been trying to, you know, like trying to show them a vibrant relationship with God, they're going to have that encounter and the amount of time and effort and energy that you have put into training them to receive the encounter will not be in vain. And a third time the Lord called Samuel. Oh man, at this point, if I was Eli, I would just stay up for a minute. Be like, I'm going to see if this kid just lays back down. Excuse me. Samuel got up and went to Eli and said, here I am. You called me. Then Eli realized that the Lord was calling the boy. So Eli told Samuel, go and lie down. And if he calls again, say, speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. You know, I got to tell somebody. I got to tell somebody right now that the obedience that you're walking in today and what you believe is the absence of the presence of God is the key to the encounter that God will use to shape the future you're believing for. There is no wasted moments with God. None. Obedience is never wasted. Saying yes is never wasted. One of the problems I think that we tend to have within the church is that we believe that we are, we're getting set up for some sort of major moment. And, and, and I, don't, I don't believe that that's untrue. However, what I would tell you is that for every and suddenly, there is a lifetime. There is a lifetime of sowing. For every and suddenly in Scripture, there is a lifetime. There is a lifetime of people saying yes to God, yes to God, yes to God, yes to God, yes to God. It doesn't magic. Can I tell you, can I tell you that breakthrough oftentimes does not magically happen? Now, it miraculously happens. But I can honestly tell you so many of the stories that you hear about people getting healed or set free or delivered. These are not just like, uh, just like a, like a one shot encounter with God. And like, these are by and large, these are the result of, 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 of sometimes decades of prayer by people who want to see breakthrough happen in someone's life. Now it all culminates with an and suddenly, but it doesn't mean that there wasn't any work to begin with. The obedience you're walking in today in what you believe is the absence of the presence of God is the key to the encounter that God will use to shape the future you're believing for. But here's my big idea today. And this is the one point that I have the entire time. The rest of the time, I'm just going to preach at you, okay? Here's my one point. The big idea. 
Go back here so I don't miss it. The window of opportunity that you have today will never come again. The window of opportunity that you have today will never come again. I'm going to say it one more time to this side of the room. The window of opportunity that you have today will never come again. You know, Pastor Jeff just did a fantastic job last week opening up this message. I, want, I don't want to belabor too much of the points, but I, I want to remind you that if you're looking for purpose, you already have one. Our purpose is primarily broken into two pieces. The first one is to love and cherish God. That is the primary call. It's the, it's the chief end of man. The second is to preach the gospel wherever your feet find you. You are a living testament. In some ways, when we say testament, it would probably be better to say a living epistle. Stephen is the book of Stephen. He is the story that God is writing in the earth. You are the story that your coworkers are seeing God unravel and unfold in their midst. In essence, your testimony is the most powerful thing that you have because it's the most powerful thing that you need. It's the only thing you need other than, I mean, Jesus and the testimony of what he's done is all you need. But some of us have gotten... Hang on, I'm about to preach. Hang on. So I was, I was, I was, I was reading a study the other day by the, by the Barna Group. And they were, they were looking at various, uh, various doctrinal points within, uh, within Christianity. And, and one that absolutely shook me, like not shocked me, but shook me. You know what I'm talking about? Like something some really shakes you up and like it kind of causes you to like get a little bit sick inside. This study found that 51% of American Christians had never heard of or at least have never had a pastor preach on, on the Great Commission. 51%. That's over half of us that don't realize that the greatest command that Jesus gave in Scripture is actually for today. If you don't know what the Great Commission is, I'll tell you. Right before Jesus' ascension into heaven, he speaks to the, the, the gathered church, the people, that were, the people that were surrounding him as he ascended, and he says... Go into all the world and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. I've got to tell somebody in the room that was not just for the apostles, that's for the church. There is no out from evangelism. Like, let me put it to you a different way. Just because you have a prophetic gift doesn't mean you don't evangelize. It means that whatever you've been given is the tool that you use to evangelize. The Great Commission is literally the Great Commission It's the thing that God has given the church. It's the great command. Apostles have to do it. Evangelists do it. Pastors do it. Everybody does it. Because that's our command. Every other gift that you have, you have been given for the purpose of fulfilling the Great Commission. If you've been given the gift of generosity... Then give unto the glory of the Lord and the advancing of his kingdom. If you've been given the gift of healing, then heal the sick for the advancing of the kingdom and the glory of God. Listen, I, this, this may seem like it's part of the reason why I only have one point today. My goal is not to, is not to, is not to take you through like the 15 different reasons why you should do things. It's just to highlight some scripture and let you know, hey, this is for you. I need everyone in the room. I said it before, but I'm going to say it again, probably several times. Stop looking for ministry. Stop waiting for ministry. You're in it. You're in it. 
Maybe I'll say it to you this way. You're not a real estate agent who happens to be a believer. You're a believer who happens to be a real estate agent. You're not a coffee shop owner who, happen, you know, who happens to be a believer. You're a believer who happens to own a coffee shop. Like, you're not a builder who also is a Christian. You're a Christian who also happens to be a builder. See, when I say work your window, what I mean by that is there is an opportunity that is available to you right now, right now, if you just recognize it. It's available to you right now. And see, most of us, I would say, maybe not most of us, I don't want to categorize everyone this way, but a lot of us, what we do is we're waiting, we're waiting for some sort of, I have to be really honest with you, we have so, it's like we're waiting for God to drag people who need the gospel in front of us, rather than simply asking, Lord, help me to have the boldness to know, not just to know who I need to preach to, but actually to talk to them about it. The gospel cannot, I, I got to tell somebody in the room, the gospel cannot be shown. It must be taught. It must be preached. I'm not saying that you can't show that, 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 that God loves people through your actions, but I can tell you that the gospel cannot be imbibed without words. If you won't preach, they won't receive. Here's what I'm not saying. I'm not saying that you have to like push your values and your beliefs on everybody that comes through your door. I'm saying that ultimately, very few of us are intentional about asking God to show us the opportunity to really minister. Let me, let me just ask you a question. You don't have to raise your hand. In the last week, how many times... Well, I guess this isn't really a raise of hands question, is it? Anyway, how many times in the last week have you gone to work and prayed, Lord, show me who I'm supposed to minister to today? Not, Lord, help me to have a great day. Not, Lord, help me to not die. I mean, that's probably a good one for some of you guys. But, like, when was the last time that you asked that question? Lord, help me to know who I'm supposed to minister today. See, oftentimes what we think of when we think of ministry is we think of, like, family first, church second, and then, like, out there somewhere, if I've got time. And inspiration. <laughs> okay, so I did a little bit of a dive into how Americans spend their time. It's kind of it's a little shocking, to be honest with you. But I'll I'll just take I'll take the one that, that, that supports my point here for a moment. Um, did you know that the average American spends eleven hours a day in bed? Eleven hours a day in bed. Now that includes everything that you would do in bed. Okay, so that's sleeping, marital stuff. Uh, like watching TV, reading a book. I mean, like it's, it's everything, right? 11 hours a day. And so like many of us would be like, oh yeah, I, I, you know, I sleep for, you know, however long I spend a little bit. But here's the thing that leaves 13 hours. I think I got that in math, right? I was public schooled. So <laughs> 13 hours, at least 13 hours in any given day that you can do anything else with. The average American spends at least eight and a half hours at work, which means that you spend more time with your coworkers than you do with your family. My question to you would be, what are you doing with that influence? How many of you have ever heard the, the phrase, the grass is always greener on the other side? You see, sometimes what we're doing is we are waiting or hoping for some sort of ministry experience or we're waiting for all of these. What we forget is that we have one of the largest, 
We have one of the largest fields that we could ever harvest from, and we're in it like nine hours a day. But because often we get caught up in work politics, we get upset about how somebody treated us, or we're just trying to get through the day, we forget that the largest area of influence that we have is slipping away. Let me put it to you a different way. You know, oftentimes, you know, we, you know, we, tend, to, we tend to look up to leaders and, and all that, but I can tell you in one instance, please don't do what I did. When I was, before I, before I got into what I'll call vocational ministry, which is I actually, this is my job, I was, in, uh, I was in construction, and I worked for four or five years with many of the most broken, hungry, like needy people that I've ever met in my life, either before or since. But because I was so focused on a future ministry that I was hoping was going to happen somewhere down the road, I didn't recognize the window of opportunity that was right in front of me. See, here's the thing is that I did a little bit of ministry with these guys, you know, a bit, when, especially near the end. But I can tell you that that window of opportunity now for me is shut. It's shut. I had, I had time. But because I didn't perceive the opportunity, they didn't receive the blessing. Does that make sense? I'm, I'm going to say it one more time. The window of opportunity that you have today is closing. And it will never come again. Now, it doesn't mean that there won't be more opportunity later. It just means that just like that guy, just like that guy who's, you know, who's cleaning the glass, once he gets done with that one window, he's got other windows he's got to go to. We got other places we got to be. The point is, don't take a break when you should be using the window. Does that make sense? Listen to this. This is in Matthew chapter 9, 36 and 38. Or excuse me, 36 through 38. You know, I used to think, I used to think that the guys that I worked with and, and, and the people we came in contact with were um, not the people that God really wanted me, you know, to minister to. Because, you, you know, a lot of times you take your fear and you spiritualize it. And you say, oh, no, that's, that's not, that's, that's not th- those guys. That's other guys out there somewhere. In essence, what we do is we pretend that the field that we're currently in doesn't actually have a harvest within it. Listen to what Jesus says in in Matthew 9. He says, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, man, the harvest is really, really small this year, guys. Not going to need as many of you out there. No, what does he say? The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. So ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send workers out into his field. Even then, even then what Jesus is saying is he's saying, you will never lack for people that need to hear the words of life. What you will lack is available believers. What you will lack is you're going to lack people like the Good Samaritan that are willing to take time out of their day to minister to broken people. And you're going to find a lot more people like the priest or like the Pharisee in that particular story who stepped out and they went to the other side of the road because they had more important things to do. I'm going to go to Matthew 10, 7 to 8 real quick. 
Because it's really interesting how Jesus, on one hand, see, we love the prayer aspect, right? Like Pastor Stephen, like we love, we love the aspect where, where Jesus says, oh man, you got to pray. We're like, oh yeah, I can pray. I can do that, right? But then in Matthew 10, verses 7 and 8, look what he does. He says, and as you go, so right after, right after Jesus tells his disciples to pray that more workers would be available, then what does he do? He says, you're the answer to your own prayer. Therefore, as you go, proclaim this message. The kingdom of heaven has come near you. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse those who have leprosy, drive out demons. Freely you have received, freely give. Now, on one hand, yes, you are the answer to your own prayers, but I would like to remind you that more than the answer to your own prayer, you are the answer to somebody else's prayer. Listen, every single week, when we pray over these prayer requests in our staff meeting that you guys, that you guys hand in every week, there is always, almost always one at least where someone is praying for a grand, like is praying for a grandchild. Someone is praying for a child. Someone is praying for their aunt. Someone's praying for their uncle. Someone's praying for their dad. Somebody's praying for their mom. And they're asking, Lord, will you, will you touch their hearts? Will you draw them into a relationship with you? And so what do we pray? We pray the same thing that you're praying. Lord, so what, what do we do? We don't say, Lord, come out of nowhere and smack them with the Holy Ghost. No, we say, Lord, I mean, that's not a bad prayer, I guess. Not a bad prayer. Keanu likes that one. But what we really pray is we pray for somebody like Keanu. And we say, you know what? Can you put somebody like Keanu in their life today that can show them an authentic relationship with Jesus? Can you surround them with people who can show them Jesus? And that's a great prayer, but the reality is is that you are the answer to somebody else's prayer that's praying the exact same thing. If you are going to pray the prayer, then live it for somebody else. Maybe I'll say it to you a different way. You want your prayer to be answered? Be the answer to somebody else's prayer first. And let the heart rate go down just a minute. <laughs> just as you are asking that God would surround your loved ones with those who know him, you are the answer to the mirrored prayer of another father, mother, brother, sister, grandmother, or grandfather. Maybe think of it this way. For those of you who work with uh, some prodigals, Remind yourself that the people you're working with have people that are praying for them because that's not their unruly person they're working alongside. That's their kid. And if it was your kid, how would you treat him? If it was your son that you wanted to show Jesus to, how would you treat him? We're going to talk a little bit about Priscilla and Aquila, and then we're going to close up here. Acts 18, verses 1 to 3. says, After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. There he met a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla because Claudius had ordered all Jews to leave Rome. Paul went to see them, listen to this, and because he was a tent maker as they were, he stayed and worked with them. Now, I just, I'm, trying to, I'm trying to fathom this, like, this, I don't know, this, like, this back and forth, right, with, with Priscilla and Aquila and Paul. I mean, like, Paul at the time, it would be like Billy, it would be like you meeting Billy Graham. And then, like, turns out that before he was like a wandering evangelist like he was also a builder and so he's just like oh man you're a builder too let's be best friends i mean so he develops this relationship with priscilla and aquila but it wasn't actually initially based upon jesus it was based upon what they did with their hands they were all tent makers so it just sort of made sense for them to work together the other interesting thing about priscilla and aquila is that priscilla and aquila 
are widely, I mean, you would, you would, you would tend to see a lot of their, uh, their, their, their names throughout early church histories. But the truth is, is that as influential as they were, obviously they ministered to the Apostle Paul so much so that in the book of Romans, he actually mentions them by name about how much he owes them. Like how much he personally owes Priscilla and Aquila for everything they've done for him. They also discipled, at least to a certain degree, Apollos, who became one of the, one of the greatest evangelists in the early church age. But despite all of this, you know what they never became? Pastor Priscilla. Apostle Aquila. They were tent makers their whole lives. Can I tell you why this is an important thing to understand? It's because in the church today, we have tended to separate the secular and the sacred. And by doing so, we tend to look at our jobs just as a job. We tend to look at the sports teams that we coach just as a sports team that we coach. We tend to look at every area outside of church as though it's secular and therefore separated from our kingdom mandate. And yet the reality is, is that the early church never saw it that way. For them, they didn't look necessarily and say, oh, Pastor Stephen's in full-time ministry because he works at the church. It's like, no, we're all in full-time ministry. Pastor Stephen just happens to work at the church. Does that make sense? Priscilla and Aquila, I mean, Luke is another great example of this. Did you know that Luke actually wrote, if you look by volume, Luke actually wrote the majority of the New Testament? And yet, you know what you never see in the book of Acts? You never see Luke laying hands on the sick and seeing him get healed. You never really see Luke preaching the gospel and a ton of people getting saved. You don't see Luke do anything. You know why? Because the only real responsibility that Luke had was he was Paul's personal physician. His goal is that when Paul would get beaten within an inch of his life, he would nurse him back to health. That was his entire role in the New Testament church, was making sure that Paul didn't die. My point is, we have got to recognize that this is a stage, not the stage. This is a stage, not the stage. You are standing on a stage whether you recognize it or not. Your life speaks. Who you are speaks. You have an influence that I will never have. There are people in your life that will never listen to me, but they will listen to you because they know you, because they're in relationship with you, and because I'm assuming you have acted like Christ around them. The reality is, is that you stand on a stage that, that very few people that stand on this stage will ever be able to stand on. You have an influence that I will never have. In essence, maybe put it a different way. You have a window that I won't have in front of me. Can I tell you one of the downsides of ministry? Okay, I'm going to do it anyway. Nobody said anything, but I'm just assuming that's tacit approval. You know, I used to work around a lot of unbelievers. I had a ton of opportunity to actually preach the gospel to people. Today, I have to go out of my way to get to know unbelievers at all. Because the vast majority of the people I work with are believers. You have a window. You have a window in front of you that it takes a lot of effort for me to get in front of me. But see, for you, it's easy because it's the window that's in front of you. See, in essence, at least for this time in my life, that window has passed me by where it's readily available. 
I would encourage you, don't keep looking at somebody else's window and saying, man, I like their view. Because you have, you have a mission in front of you that nobody but you can do. I think that's a really important point for somebody to grab hold of. We like to believe, and, and, and maybe this is a great way of believing, but we like to believe that if I don't do the work, somebody else will. If I, don't, if I don't preach it, if I don't live it, if I don't whatever, that somebody else, God will raise up somebody else. And maybe, maybe he will. But I tell you, I've met a lot of people. I've met a lot of people who have been around a lot of believers that never actually preached the gospel to them. They never actually lived a gospel that was, that was, that was worth, give, worth grabbing hold of. I don't know if you don't do your job if somebody else is going to do it for you. I don't know. I just know that I'm not going to do it for you. I'm going to say it to this side of the room. I don't know if somebody, if you don't do your job, if somebody's going to do it for you, but I know that I'm not going to do your job for you. See, my goal is to build you, is to equip you for the work of ministry. The goal of leadership and the role of leaders in the church is not to do everything for you. It's to show you. It's to help you. It's to guide you. But ultimately, the work of ministry is done on you. Does that make sense? Hammy, why don't you come up? (laughs) One of the most common misconceptions of ministry is that someday or something like when I'm ready, the Lord is going to like elevate me or something to some sort of pastoral role. Can I, guys, can I? I wish I had like a stool that I could sit on right now so I could just like kind of like just rap at you. You know what I'm saying? Instead of like preach at you. You understand what I'm saying? I got to tell you, don't waste your life on a, like looking for a platform God doesn't want you on. Seriously, don't waste your life. Listen, there are some builders in this room that if I gave you a set of blueprints, you could absolutely build an incredible home. If you gave me those blueprints, and, and this is not for lack of experience. I, I mean, I've been in the trades a little bit. Like, I know how to like hammer a nail and, you know, and, you know I, I know how to do some stuff. But I tell you, if you gave me blueprints and tried to make me make your house, I'm not saying it would never get done. I'm just saying you would not like the end result. And the reason is, I mean, come on, like every builder in this room, like every builder in this room knows there's a difference between a good builder and a builder. And it's, you got to be careful because you never want to get the guy that's like, to build your house, right? The truth is, is that every, every career, every skill, whatever you want to call it, every career comes with prerequisite giftings that if you don't have them, you're not going to be successful. I have honestly, see, I'm, I'm being, I hope that I'm not offending anyone, but I'm being, I'm just trying to be super transparent with you. Like 3% of all Christians are in full-time ministry. And I've seen some of these guys. Some of these guys should not be in full-time ministry. And it's not their character. It's not like they're bad people. It's that they weren't, they're not actually equipped to do the job. If you don't have certain prerequisites, you're not going to be good at what you do. In this, I mean, let me put it this way. When I was in youth ministry, one of the things that I would have to do constantly is disappoint people. I felt sometimes like I was a minister of disappointment. Like somebody come up to me and be like, Pastor Joel, I'm supposed to be a youth pastor. I'm like, no, you're not. I love you, but no. Because what they saw was they looked up to me as a leader and they wanted to do what I did, which is great. I love that. But I tell you what, I look up to my doctor too. But I'm telling you, me trying to go to medical school would have been bad. 
Like, I'm terrible at biology and anatomy. These are prerequisites. My mind doesn't work that way. The truth is, is that because so many of us have sequestered ministry into this one narrow scope, that all we've got is, oh, it's pastoral. I have to be pastor. No, friend, you are a pastor. You're already a leader. If you have been bought, if you have been bought by the blood of Jesus, you're already a leader. That's it. The problem is you haven't figured out where you're leading yet. You don't have to lead from here to lead somewhere. My old pastor used to say this way. He said, you probably are not called. Not everybody is called to be a pastor, but every single person is called to be a pastor of one. Everyone is called to pastor somebody. You may not pastor a church, but you're going to pastor people. See, we have, a, we have a little bit of a disconnect. The moment we say pastor, we start thinking of, oh, some guy on staff. Actually, if we were being like super biblically whatever, I would probably be known as bishop. Can you imagine that? Bishop Eklund. Actually, it's got a ring to it. Bishop. I like that. Get a robe and everything. But because we have made every person who's on staff a pastor... It's like that becomes the role. The moment you think pastor, you think of, oh, I, I work for the church. No, dog, you work, and you work in the community, and you are a child of God, and therefore you are called. See, somebody in the room needs to know God tricked you. See, you don't know this, but he tricked you. See, what happened was is that he gave you a skill. He gave you gifts. He got you a job, and now... Your job isn't just make money and die. Your job is to use the place of your influence as a place to advance the kingdom of God. Work your window. Because it's closing faster than you think. Somebody else needs to know you got to stop demeaning what God has given you. you got to stop demeaning what God has given you. You know, there are so many people that never get into the game because they are convinced that what they have is not enough. That I'm convinced that nobody wants what God has given me. I'm convinced that nobody needs what God has given me. Nobody needs my testimony. Nobody needs my experience. No, they just, I'll just bring him to church and Pastor Joel will preach to him. Then I'm going to tell you the truth. Okay, hang on. Whew. I'm going to tell you the truth, but I'm going to say it a little quieter. <clears throat> you have got to stop telling God that what he gave you wasn't enough. Stop it. Stop. You know, sometimes, sometimes the absurdity, Hannah, it's the absurdity of our giftings that makes it so powerful because it doesn't make any sense that when Jesus was going to feed 5,000 people, it was a little boy's lunch that he used as the seed offering. He didn't multiply money. Like, you, you, you understand what I'm saying? But Lisa, he didn't, he didn't say, that, give me all your money, little kid, and I'm going to multiply it. No, he said, what do we have? What do we got? What do we have available? Can you imagine? I just, you know, I, I think about this, Josh. Like, this is the way my mind works. I think about how absurd it must have sounded to the, uh, to the disciples. I mean, these guys are, Adrian, these guys are, these guys are like, they're coming up. When Jesus says, what do we got? A little kid comes up and says, I've got lunch. I mean, can you imagine Peter being like, um, uh, uh, thanks. 
kid. Yeah, we'll, uh, we'll, take, we'll take that. We'll see if we can add it to the pile, <laughs> right? But it's the, the absurdity of the gospel, the absurdity of the power of God is that he doesn't need your power. He needs your obedience. He doesn't need your ability. He needs your yes. He doesn't need anything from you except I trust you, God. Because everything else is his. Everything else is on his authority. Everything else is in his name. It's on his power. All you have to do is show up with your lunch. There's some people in the room this morning. You have received ridiculous prophetic words. Words that were so crazy that when you heard them, just like Sarah, hearing that she was going to have a child in her old age, Hannah, you're not old. That was weird. Okay, we're good. We're good. We're back. So getting spiritual again, guys. Listen, that just like Sarah, when she heard the news that this time next year that she was going to have a child, she laughed. She laughed. I mean, like, can you imagine knowing that an angel of the Lord, knowing that an angel of the Lord, Stephen, came to you and says, this is what God's going to do. And you're like, ha, 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 good one. You got me. She had the audacity to laugh, but some of you, when you heard those words, did the same thing. Because inside, what you told yourself was, that can't be. I'm not enough. I don't have it. Friend, can I just, can I ask you? All you got to do is bring your lunch. You don't have to bring the miracle. You just got to bring your yes. Obedience in itself is a miracle. It's a miracle that you're able to obey God. It's a miracle that you're able to say yes to him. And that's all you have to do. Show up. Bring what you, bring what you have. You know, there's a, there's a motorcycle rally down here that, that happens every year. And I think it's called, am I right about saying, run what you brung? You know what I love about that? I love that the whole purpose of it is, hey man, whatever you got, bring it. Whatever you have. You're riding what you're bringing. You're not riding what Pastor Steven's bringing. You're not riding what Pastor Joel's bringing. You're not riding what Pastor Lindsay's bringing. You're not, you're, you're not riding what Anna's bringing. You're riding what you've got. And here's the thing. What you have, when it's met by the power of God, is always enough. Always. Don't for one second believe that God could do it through a low, broken man like Peter, but he can't do it through you. If he could do it through Peter, he can definitely do it through you. If he could do it through Paul, he can do it through you. If he can do it through anyone that he's done it with throughout the whole of human history, he can do it through you. I want to remind you one last time. Work your window. It's closing a lot faster than you think. You have an opportunity today that's going to close and it won't remain open you have a responsibility yeah man there's some of us I would say I, I, would, I would hesitate but I, I believe every single person in this room has been given some sort of word from the Lord some sort of insight about a great move of God in the future or whatever it is that he has for you but I got to tell you as wonderful as your future is your present is beautiful too and it requires your full attention come on let's pray Heavenly Father, I thank you. I thank you that you give us a glimpse of our future.
so that the mission in the now doesn't feel like it's small. There is no small thing in the kingdom of God. There's no small gift in the kingdom of God. And Lord, I pray that as we, as we head out of this place, God, that we would be reminded that we have a window that's open right in front of us. I don't have to look to the left or to the right. I don't have to, I don't have to wonder what it's like over on so-and-so's uh, side, of, side of the fence. I don't have to worry about the view from somebody else's window. But I have, I have, I have a window right in front of me that is specifically for me. I have a mission and I have a time frame. I pray that we would be people who are bold enough to work the window while it's open. To work the window while it's open. Now I'm going to ask you one question this morning. You know, in, in the Greek, there's a, there's a word, there's a, there's a term that's, that's kairos. Kairos moment. It means a pivotal moment. It means, it means a moment upon which everything else hinges, upon which everything breaks. That, 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 a, that a decision made at the right time can change everything from that day forward. Or a decision made at the wrong time can mean that everything breaks the wrong way going forward. But here's what I believe. I believe today is a Kairos moment for some people who have not met Jesus. This is a moment, a linchpin of your life that if you will say yes to the Lord, God is going to change everything. He's going to redeem you. He's going to restore you. He's going to break your addictions. He's going to, he's going to raise you into a relationship. He's going to call you a son. He's going to call you a daughter. He is going to call you out of your misery and into his light. Today is a day where everything changes. Today is a day where everything shifts. If that's you today and you realize, man, I need that. I need Jesus in my life. I need, I need a change. I need a shift. If that's you this morning and you're saying, I want Jesus, I'd like you to raise your hand. I want to pray for you. Is there anybody in the room this morning that you have not accepted Jesus, but today is the day you'd like to do so? Anybody in the room today? Jesus, we thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Heavenly Father, right now, we thank you. We thank you for the gift of Jesus. We thank you for the power of his salvation. Lord, I pray for every person in this room. God, I pray for every person in this room that we would access the boldness that is in the Holy Spirit. To be reminded that, our, that, the, that, the, that the field that we're standing in, the place of the authority that you've given us is not a curse, but it's a blessing. It's a place where you've called us to impact. It's a place where you've called us to change the world from the, from the inside out, one life at a time. God, remind us of the window. Remind us of the window. Remind us of the window. So that instead of a testimony of regret, we have a testimony of look what God did when I stepped out in faith. In Jesus' mighty name, amen.